as many of you know, we have just learned that out of a large supply of oil from the National Strategic Reserve, this is almost a billion barrels of oil that is stashed in the United States at different strategic stockpile areas. Some of it, about 10%, was released by President Joe Biden. Guess where the oil went? Most of it, unfortunately, left the United States. It was sold to places like China. This is just something in a continuing saga that our political leadership in the United States does not understand. The People's Republic of China has active measures that go far beyond anything Russia has done or the Soviet Union. They have people in government. They have members of Congress. There are, of course, scores of media outlets and others. China has an intense network of People's Republic of China PLA or People's Liberation Army personnel in the United States that are deployed. Active intelligence assets, some who've infiltrated the Senate. In some cases, there are allegations that some members of Congress and some members of the Senate are in league with the PRC. At least two Republican senators are known to have family members who have received massive loans from the People's Republic of China. Much worse when you get to the Democrat side. Business deals, land development, and property developments. The Speaker of the House of Representatives, several members of Congress, the head of the Congress's Ethics Committee, and of course, Joe Biden's son, Hunter, who dealt $1.5 billion income from Chinese investments, of which he made an unprecedented sale for a non-hedge fund manager, a non-financial advisor, someone who had just basically come out of drug rehab and had been kicked out of the Navy for drug dealing, was suddenly brokering deals with the PRC. Here's more about China's role in the United States from the chairman of the United States-China Committee and their hearing on China's role in the USA. At the White House. Today, the committee will examine the counterintelligence threats posed by the People's Republic of China and the Chinese Communist Party. We will look at the PRC's activities within the United States as it works to acquire critical U.S. technologies, intellectual property, hack into the U.S. cyber networks, and conduct influence operations to shape narratives to be more favorable to the PRC and the CCP. I hope the witnesses will also discuss their recommendations for better countering the CCP's efforts in the United States. Now, the Intelligence Committee, as we're often reminded us, doesn't normally hold open hearings, but Vice Chairman Rubio and I believe this story needs to get out to the American public. Several years ago, the committee, in a bipartisan way, thanks in part to Senators Rubio, Burr, Cornyn, and Collins, convened a series of classified sessions with leaders from the intelligence community and leaders from the private sector, tech, finance, venture capital, academia, to brief them on efforts by the CCP 
to target their industries. I've wanted for some time to take those briefs and move them into an open hearing so that the U.S. public, including the private sector, our academic institutions, our media outlets, and others can better understand these threats and how we, as a society, can counter them. Because the truth is, the government cannot counter the CCP's actions all by itself. One of the most important areas that I hope the witnesses will address is how China is focusing on targeting key U.S. technologies for both acquisition and development. These include aerospace, advanced manufacturing, AI, biotech, data analytics, semiconductors, renewables, all in order to ensure PRC's future dominance in these areas. We saw this play out in many ways. And again, I think this committee was one of the first to notice the CCP's efforts in the pursuit of 5G technology, backing of Huawei. And I'm proud of this committee's work in sounding the alarm on the threat of what would happen if networks all around were reliant on a sole source Chinese provider in 5G. That would threaten both our national security and our allies' security. I hope the witnesses will also address how the CCP is using a variety of methods to acquire these capabilities, including cyber and traditional espionage, but also using a lot of the tools of business, joint ventures, acquisitions, mergers, and increasingly strategic investments by firms that at the end of the day are answerable to the Communist Party leadership in Beijing. They're also creating a series of partnerships with universities, in many ways, oftentimes luring some of those universities into trips or sinecures that sometimes put that academic research at risk. We also know increasingly we're seeing their malign influence efforts to affect policy decisions that we in the Congress make. In fact, the FBI has estimated that China's theft of intellectual, of simply American intellectual property, not worldwide, just American intellectual property, runs from between 300 to $600 billion a year. According to the DOJ, 80% of all economic espionage prosecutions brought by the DOJ allege conduct that would benefit the Chinese state. And 60% of all trade secret theft cases have some nexus to China. FBI Director Ray told this committee in April that the Bureau has more than 2,000 operations going on, investigations, that tie back to the Chinese government. This is one of the most stunning facts he laid out. He opens up a new investigation into Chinese espionage every 10 hours. The director also attested that no other country represents more of a threat to the United States, its economic security, and democratic ideals than China. And that China's ability to influence American institutions is, quote, deep, wide, and persistent. Seating leadership across these technology sectors would have major repercussions for U.S. economic and national security. Let's not forget that in most ways, since World War II, the United States has led in both scientific research and the development of transformational technologies. It's this leadership that has translated into decades of economic success for U.S. companies and our military capabilities. As part of our technological leadership, the U.S., or like-minded democracies, also set 
the global standards and protocols for new technology. Many of the times we can implant in those standards, in those protocols, our values. Democracy, transparency, diversity of opinion, and respect for human rights. And that is a long-term value to our country that I don't think is often factored in. I've been frustrated, though, by the frequency by which U.S. companies, in their desire for market access in China, have frankly given up sometimes on those values and sometimes facilitated and enabled the PRC to acquire sensitive U.S. technologies. The idea they can't miss the Chinese market means they make sacrifices going into that market they would make in no other nation. China, in turn, uses these technologies to advance its own illiberal vision to surveil and control its population, stifle the free flow of information, and repress foreign influence ca campaigns worldwide. These technologies enable the PRC to suppress dissident and restrict religious groups. We see that whether it's in Xinjiang or in Hong Kong. As we think through what the CCP is doing in the United States, I want to make crystal clear that my concerns lie squarely with the president of China, Xi Jinping, and the Chinese Communist Party leaders, not the people of China, and certainly not with Chinese or other Asian Americans who have contributed so much to our society. Our answer to these challenges cannot be to keep talented folks out of the United States. In fact, we've seen in my state of Virginia, Northern Virginia particularly, a technology hotbed, literally 40% of all the startups are started by first-generation Americans. So it is in our national interest to welcome these talented Chinese academics, entrepreneurs, and technologists. And in fact, make it more attractive for them to use their talent to bolster our economy, rather than simply going back to China. This is again where our values come into play. And Americans should also be aware that the PRC's pressures and coercion efforts don't stop with the diaspora of Chinese nationals living in the United States. As Senator Rubio will point out, increasingly, the CCP is focused on pressuring U.S. citizens, entities, and businesses across industries to, again, shape a narrative that advances their goals. Even for this hearing, a number of potential witnesses declined to participate in an open format for fear of retribution to themselves or their families. From the PRC's pursuit of critical and sensitive technology to its repression at home and coercion abroad, and its focus on trying to win the technology battle in the 21st century, it's clear that I think our country is facing a new Sputnik moment where we must take steps to remain competitive, especially in technology, and find better ways to strengthen our defenses against the CCP's myriad intelligence, tech acquisition, and foreign influence operations because we're back into this kind of semi-hybrid system today. For today's meeting, we will be asking questions by order of seniority, and as Senator King has made clear, with a five-minute rule apply. Thank you, and now turn to the Vice Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for holding this hearing. <clears throat> I think you started out by talking about how unusual it is we have these open hearings, and there's a reason for it. Um, the members of this committee, on a regular basis, review some of the most uh, sensitive intelligence, both intelligence and products that come from them that this government has available to it. So I think it should send a powerful message um, when you see that on issue after issue relating to, to China, 
issues that some would argue are outside the purview of what this committee has traditionally looked at, technology, academia, uh, influence operations, global diplomacy, uh, industrial policy, that it is members of this committee that you see in the lead on so many issues relating to China. Uh, because the members of this committee have a because of the role they play, I have a very unique insight into this horror show that's playing out before our eyes in the 21st century. The, the title of this hearing is The Long Arm of China. The Long Arm of China is not some futuristic threat. It's already here. China is stealing between 300 and 600 billion dollars a year. Three to 600 billion dollars a year of American technology and intellectual property. They hack into networks and they take it. They use venture capital funds to, to buy promising technology startups. They hide their, their ownership, by the way. They partner with universities on research, and then they steal that research, often research that whose seed funding came from the U.S. taxpayer. They, they force American companies doing business in China to give the technology over to them. And I think the other thing most people don't realize is China already, already has tremendous influence and control over what Americans are allowed to say or hear about them or many of the other issues in the world. Hollywood is so desperate, for example, to have their movies shown in China that Hollywood won't make a movie that the China communist censors don't approve. The U.S. corporations are so desperate to have access to the Chinese market that they'll leave costly boycotts of a state, an American state, that passes a law that they don't like, but, but they don't dare say a word about the fact that as we speak, genocide is taking place against Uyghur Muslims. American companies have actually fired Americans who live in America for saying or writing something that, that China doesn't like. There's some examples here that are pretty stunning. 2019, China suspended business ties with the NBA because the general manager of the Houston Rockets expressed support for Hong Kong democracy protests. 2019, Apple removed an app that enabled protesters in Hong Kong to organize following CCP pressure. In 2019, an American company, Activision Blizzard, suspended a game and took away his prize money for voicing support for Hong Kong protesters. In 2018, Marriott fired a, an employee that ran a social media account because he liked a Twitter post from a Twitter account applauding Marriott for listing Tibet as a country rather than as part of China. He was fired after that. 2018, Gap. Gap made a shirt with a map of China and it didn't include Taiwan. They apologized for it, and they removed the shirt from its stores. Now, maybe you think that shirt thing is trivial. I don't think people getting fired is trivial, apps getting trivial, these other things. These are just one of a handful of many, and this is already happening. So um, in conclusion, I'd say two things. The first is chairman is absolutely right. This is not about the Chinese people, or especially not about Chinese Americans, okay? My parents came from Cuba. I live in a community filled with Cuban-Americans. It would be unfair to blame Cuban-Americans for the atrocities of the Cuban regime, and it would most certainly be unfair to blame the Cuban people for the horrifying actions of, of the regime that controls that enslaved island. Likewise, the biggest opponents of the Chinese Communist Party on the planet happen to be Chinese. Many live here, many in other parts of the world, and many under their oppressive thumb. So this is not about the, China, the Chinese people. It is about a Communist Party, and it is time to wake up. Today, China is already carrying out the biggest illegal wealth transfer from one nation to another in the history of mankind. Today, the Chinese Communist Party has more control over what Americans can say, what we can hear, what we can read, what we can watch,
than any foreign government has ever had in our history. And they have weaponized our openness. They have weaponized our decency. And they have weaponized our corporate lust for profits against us. And if we don't wake up and we don't address this now, the America our children are going to inherit very soon could very well be one where the sanctimonious preachings, as someone said, the sanctimonious preachings of a genocidal communist tyranny will be the only thing that Americans will be allowed to hear or say about China. So I'm glad we're having this hearing. Mr. Chairman, just as a point of privilege here, um, one of our longtime staffers today's his last hearing with this Paul Matula, he's been with the committee with 16 years, worked with Senators Hatch, Chambliss, Burr, and Cornyn, and, and now here with us. And um, so he's retiring, and uh, we hope, as all retirees should, he's moving to Florida. We don't know, but um, but that's what Americans do. And uh, but anyway, we want to thank him for his service to the committee, and uh, we hope our last hearing will be a memorable. But thank you for the service. Let me let me echo that, and this was um, subject of quite a bit of focus yesterday in our closed hearing, where we went into some of Paul's um, behavior and linguistic abilities. Um, luckily, that will stay classified. But uh, we all very much value Paul's work, and again, want to commend him in particular for he and the whole team, but their relentless pursuit of the truth in the Russia investigation. With that, we, we turn to our witnesses, and I'm not sure, Anna, Bill, Matt on WebEx, who's going to go first, but uh, the floor is yours. Good afternoon, Chairman Warner, Vice Chairman Rubio, members of the committee. It's an honor to be here before you today. I've humbly briefed this committee on a regular basis for more than a decade as the Director of National Counterintelligence and Security Center and as a Senior Executive of the FBI and CIA. I was tremendously honored last year to be the first Senate-confirmed Director of NCS leading our nation's counterintelligence efforts. And I want to specifically thank this committee for your support. I'm here today before you as a private citizen. Today's topic, the holistic and comprehensive threat to the United States posed by the Communist Party of China is an existential threat. And it is the most complex, pernicious, aggressive, and strategic threat our nation has ever faced. I proffer that the US private sector and academia have become the geopolitical battle space for China. Xi Jinping has one goal, to be the geopolitical, military, and economic leader in the world, period. He, along with China's Ministry of State Security, People's Liberation Army, and United Front Work Department, drive a comprehensive and whole-of-country approach to their efforts to invest, leverage, infiltrate, influence, and steal from every corner of the United States. This is a generational battle for Xi and the Communist Party. It drives their every decision. So why does it matter? Because economic security is national security. Our economic global supremacy, stability, and long-term vitality is at risk. and squarely in the crosshairs of Xi Jinping and the communist regime. It is estimated 8% of American adults have had all of their personal data stolen by the Communist Party of China. The other 20% just some of the data. As the chairman and vice chairman already met, referenced, the estimated economic loss last year in the country of China, just from known intellectual property and trade secret loss, 
is between 300 and 600 billion dollars a year. It's a big number. What that means it's between 4,000 and 6,000 dollars per American family of four after taxes. Competition is great and necessary, and it is what made America the global leader we are today. However, I would proffer China's economic growth the past decade via any and all means is considerably less than fair competition. My question is, are we really competing? If we do not alter how we compete with awareness of China's malign methodology and one-sided practices, we will not sustain our global position as the world leaders from tomorrow's emerging technology down to our creative ideations. We must create a robust public-private partnership with real intelligence sharing, while at the same time staying true to the values, values, morals, and rule of law which made America the greatest country in the world. This will take a whole-of-nation approach with a mutual fund analogous long-term commitment. Such an approach must start with a contextual awareness campaign reaching a broad audience from every level of government to university campuses and from boardrooms to business schools. The why matters. As an example, Huawei is a national security threat to the United States. This committee is aware of that. We do not effectively explain to America why. U.S. boards and directors and investment leaders must begin to look beyond the next fiscal quarterly earnings call and begin to think strategically about how their investment decisions and unawareness of the long-term threat can impact their businesses and industries, as well as America's economic and national security. From a cybersecurity perspective, China possesses persistent and unending resources to penetrate our systems and exfiltrate our data, or sit dormant and wait, or plant malware on a critical infrastructure for future hostilities. At the same time, the insider threat epidemic originating from the Communist Party of China has been nothing short of devastating the United States corporate world. Additionally, the Communist Party of China strategically conducts malign influence campaigns at the state and local level of the United States with precision. These efforts must be exposed and mitigated. To effectively defend against China and compete effectively, we must put the same effort into this threat as we did to combat terrorism in the past 20 years. I would suggest the threat posed by the Communist Party of China is much more dangerous to our economic military viability as a nation. In conclusion, I'd like to state for the record, as the chairman and vice chairman mentioned, the significant national security threat we face in the Communist Party of China is not a threat posed by the Chinese people or as individuals. Chinese nationals or any Chinese person or Chinese ethnicity here in the United States or around the world are not a threat. They should not be racially targeted in any matter whatsoever. This is a threat pertaining to a draconian communist country with an autocratic dictator who is committed to human rights violations and stopping at nothing to achieve his geopolitical goals. Thank you for this opportunity to be here with you today. I look forward to dialogue with my colleagues. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Anna? Thank you. Uh, Chairman Warner, Ranking Member Rubio, members of the committee. Thank you for the opportunity to testify today. The issues we are going to discuss will make us uncomfortable because they touch on the core beliefs and assumptions we make as Americans regarding democracy, opportunity, capitalism, open markets, and the importance and role of immigrants throughout the history of the US. 
My own grandparents were immigrants who came here to this country with little formal education, worked menial jobs, and made a new life for themselves. My presence here today is a testament to the American dream. I want to start with saying that there's no room for xenophobia or ethnic profiling in the US. It goes against everything we have stood for as a nation. And precisely because of these values, we need to find a principled way forward. The issues should not be seen as concerns of one administration or the policies of one political party, but as the challenges created by a nation state that is ever more authoritarian and that has a different system, a different regard for human rights, and a different view of competition and fairness. Since you have my written testimony, I will focus my remarks on some of the highlights. China is engaged in a strategic rivalry with the US centered on economic power. China's management of its relationship with the US has been designed to mask key aspects of this rivalry. This is why it's so difficult to have these conversations. Beijing in many ways understands the societal tensions and its statecraft is directed at them, exploiting identity politics and promoting any changes to US policy as ethnic profiling. Extreme positions such as closing our eyes or closing the doors only benefits China. So now let's take a moment and talk about what's at stake. United States science and technology dominance since World War II has underpinned US national strength and soft power. Losing our technological edge and the influence it entails will have far reaching implications beyond scientific disciplines. This is not only about military technologies. Future strength will be built on 5G, AI, and biotechnology. And our systems are fundamentally not the same. China's central government policies and the role of the state create this different system. These include talent programs that exploit its diaspora, S&T development programs with acquisition strategies built into them, and China's policy on civil military fusion. Let me be clear. China says it will use any knowledge or technology it acquires for its military. This is not conjuncture or profiling or analysis, but stated China's stated position, and I would add for decades, we should believe them. Given the scope and scale of China's activities, a reevaluation of our underlying assumptions and how we evaluate risk will be essential to counting these efforts. Therefore, I have the following recommendations. First, we really do need to improve ourselves. The US and other liberal democracies must invest in the future. And we also have to realize that not all discovery has immediate commercial application. We need to focus on things that provide the highest value to the nation instead of just the lowest cost. We must build research security into future funding programs. We also need to face the facts as a society. Beijing doesn't play by fair market rules. It does not respect foreign intellectual property. It is willing to act directly and indirectly to ensure its favorite companies win in the market. The result of this is that our companies and our researchers are not competing on an equal and level playing field, but instead are up against the strategy, and I would add the power and the money of a nation state. We must increase transparency. Existing policies and laws are insufficient to address the level of influence the Chinese Communist Party exerts in our society, especially in academia. We must increase reporting requirements for foreign money at our academic and research institutes and university government labs and research institutions should have clear reporting requirements and rules on the participation of foreign 
talent programs. That part really needs to be, be country agnostic. We need to ensure true reciprocity. This is about fairness and market access. We can no longer allow China to weaponize its market. Connecting China's reciprocity and sharing of scientific data to its access to US institutions and big science facilities is a leverage point. For too long, we have looked the other way when China has not followed through on the details of its agreements that it has entered into. We also need to bolster cooperation and the communication of risk with our allies and partners. What also makes these conversations difficult, and as my colleague has alluded to, is that the reality that China is presenting is inconvenient to those that are benefiting in the short term. This includes companies looking for short-term profits, academics that benefit personally from funding and cheap labor in the laboratories, and former government officials who cash in as lobbyists for China, state-owned and state-supported companies. We need to move beyond tactical solutions and have a comprehensive strategy for how we deal with China. So I would like to thank the committee once again for continuing to discuss this issue. These are hard conversations that we as a nation must have if we are going to protect and promote U.S. competitiveness, future developments, and our values. If we do not highlight and address China's policies that violate global norms and our values, we give credence to a system that undermines fairness, openness, and human rights. The Chinese people deserve better, the U.S. people deserve better, and I think our future really depends on it. So thank you. That's the initial introductions to the hearing that was taken by the U.S. Uh, Commission on China and its threats to the United States. So we're going to be looking at this more closely with more and also be bringing you shortly uh, the uh, statement of uh, FBI Director Christopher Wray in new testimony that he has raised the threat of China and its active measures and the threat to Taiwan that is actually growing more intense per day. I'm Mike of New York. We're keeping an eye on things for you <laughs> with the eye that works, obviously. And we will be back with more. I'm Mike K. Cohen. God bless you. God bless America. God bless us all.